If you have seen that award-winning movie entitled Driving Miss Daisy, you remember toward the end of the movie a very, very special scene when that woman of high society reached out and took the hand of Hoke, the man who was her driver and her handyman about the house. And taking his hand, she said, Hoke, you are my best friend. Then there was an equally moving scene at the very end of the movie when she is now confined to a nursing facility. Hoke is himself unable to drive. And Miss Daisy's son goes by and picks up Hoke and gives him a ride out to see his mother. When they arrive, the son begins to chatter a lot of aimless chatter, really. And Miss Daisy hushes him up because she said, Hoke is my friend and he came to see me, not to hear you talk. Our friendships really shape our lives, don't they? Our relationships with one another. As John says it, our relationship with our brother but when he says that, don't think in terms of that blood brother, but think instead of brothers and sisters and all of the people with whom we come in contact on a regular basis. Think of all of those significant others in your life, the circle of your acquaintances. They shape our lives. And when you think about that, remember that John commanded us to love those significant others. When John said, a new and an old commandment I give you, it was the most radical commandment the universe has ever heard. No one had been commanded to love like Christians are commanded to love. At first, it's almost difficult to understand. He said, I give you an old commandment we've had from the beginning, but I give you a new commandment. It sounds like a riddle. Almost like that man felt who had been run over in the street and a priest was called to come and hear his last confession, administer rites. And the, the priest asked him, Sir, do you believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And the man complained, said, Here I am, maybe dying, and you asked me a riddle. Well, what John says about the commandment sounds almost like a riddle, doesn't it? But in reality, he is saying this is basic morality we're talking about. When he talks about you have had it from the beginning, he is meaning that there is a, a wide gap between hatred and light. The difference between daylight and dark. If we hate, we live in the dark. If we love, we walk in the light. It's kind of like Lord Morley, who went to that university in Canada years ago to speak to the graduating men of that school. His first words from the rostrum were, I have come 4,000 miles to tell you that there is a difference between right and wrong. John is saying, from the beginning, God has created a huge gap between hate and love. 
And because God himself, the creator of this universe, is defined as love, if someone chooses to hate, they are going against the grain of the universe. If they disobey the commandment to love, sooner or later they run into the very structure of the universe itself. The only life that works, the only life that is marked by greatness, is a life which is marked by love for significant others. We've had it from the beginning. As early as the book of Leviticus, God said, you shall love, you shall love your neighbor. And then he goes on to say, what you've had from the beginning is now made new. It's made new in the person of Jesus Christ and in his kingdom, which is broken in. Certainly, he was thinking about the 13th chapter of John, the gospel, when John said, a new commandment I give you, namely that you love one another even as I have loved you. So now the commandment takes on a new shade, a new texture, a new meaning. We are to love as Christ loves. And what is the width of the love of Jesus Christ? Well, at the time Jesus gave this new commandment, there were those who believed it was perfectly all right to love one's enemy, just as we have those who believe that now. But our Lord changed all that, saying, you shall do, love your enemy and do good to those who would despitefully use you. This is, this is new stuff. This is a, a new commandment. There were those who believed there was joy in heaven over one sinner who was obliterated. And Jesus turned that around and said, I tell you, there is joy in heaven over one sinner who comes home. There was those who believed that, that the Gentiles were created as fire for the fuels of hell. And now Jesus makes it clear that God so loved the whole world. He loved the whole world that we might be saved. So in Jesus Christ, the commandment is made new. Now it's, it's understandable. We see what God is really like. It's almost like that couple who lived at a at a gap in the mountains, a lovely scene. But having been there for generations, they no longer saw its beauty. One day a great artist came and asked permission to paint the scene from their front porch. And as they watched him lay out the canvas and began the painting and followed him through the process, gradually they began to see it through the eyes of an artist. At last they said, we didn't know how beautiful it was until you showed us. We didn't really understand the depth and the meaning and the length and the breadth of this commandment until we see it expressed, personified, as it were, in the life of Jesus the Christ. The love took on such a quality of newness, Christian love, that we had to have a new word for it. Now, the Greek language is very versatile, much more than is our language. Indeed, there are four words for love in the Greek language. The first three of those words have to do with love that, that happens to anybody and, and almost everybody. They have to do with the heart. They have to do with emotions. They have to do with sexual love, with family love, with friendship love. All of those loves are, are the things that we don't have to seek after them. They they, they may be unsought, but nevertheless, they continue to happen. We, we talk about falling in love. 
But when Jesus talked about the nature of God's love, they had to find a new word for that, and that new word is agape. We've heard that word. And agape love is not necessarily a, God, a, a love of the emotions or, or the love of feeling, but agape love is a love of the mind and of the attitude and of the will. Agape love, or let's call it Christian love, is, is a principle of life. Not just a quality of feeling, it is a principle of life. Someone has is, is defined it as unconquerable benevolence toward other people. It is a principle of life by which we live, and it required a whole new word. Now, when people who fall in love come to the altar to be married, I always pray that mixed in with their love of the emotions and the feelings, that they also have Christian love, which is a matter of the mind, will, and attitude, a principle of life. I, I pray for that, because feelings and emotions fluctuate, they ebb and flow. But if we have a principle of life guiding and governing, then our, our marriages are going to be much more stable. I think about that man I read about him the other day, who, together with the woman he was about to marry, went to the justice of the peace. And this couple inquired if he could marry them on late that Friday evening. And he, looking at their license, discovered that there was an error. And he said, no, this is incorrect. I can't marry you until you, you have a correct uh, marriage license. And the offices are closed. You'll have to wait until Monday. And, and the man said, couldn't you just say a few words to get us through the weekend? <laughs> and for many people, marriage is just a, a few words to get them through the weekend. And, and if you're contingent on, on emotions and feelings only, it may get you, they may get you through more than just a few weekends, but there will come a time in your life when you need a principle to live by. There will be a time when you don't feel love, but you will do love. You will love simply because you have Christian love and you have a commitment and you will discover to your great surprise and delight that the feelings take care of themselves because they follow the principle, not vice versa. Why do we have Christian love? Love of the mind and of the will as well as the heart. Because we want to be like God. That's our objective. Jesus said we're to love our enemies in order to be like God. And what did he say about this God? This God causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. He loves the good and the evil. In other words, with Christian love, we can love independent of our feelings for someone. We can love even in the absence of the emotion of love. We can love, we can seek someone's highest good, which is agape love. We can seek someone's highest good, even when we don't necessarily uh, feel some kind of, of friendship love for that person. Now, loving, expressing Christian love is not easy. 
We waste a lot of our time and energy trying to decide many times whether or not someone is worthy of our love. We really do that. We we know we're called to love, but first we want to decide if they're worthy. I remember reading about a letter Richard Nixon received. It was during the Watergate scandal, and he was at his lowest point. And Harold Macmillan, a former prime minister of Great Britain, wrote Richard Nixon a letter and said to him, Our friendship compels me to write you a note of sympathy. And he said, I trust that soon these dark clouds will roll away. Richard Nixon wrote a tribute to the man, and it was published in the London papers. Because Richard Nixon had received the kind of love I'm talking about. It is a love that reaches out to someone whether or not they observe it. It's rather like the same kind of thing that happened when one of our bishops resigned some years ago with a shadow over his life and administration. After his resignation, some expressed surprise that our more evangelical bishops rallied to his side so quickly, offered to help him find another job, offered to help him during the transition time. But why should they have been surprised by that? Because when we come right down to it, we Christians do not have the right to withhold our love and our assistance contingent upon whether or not someone is deserving of it. That isn't the question. The question is, the really big compelling question is, did you deserve God's love when he gave it to you in the person of Jesus? And if God gave you his love even though you were unworthy... Because he's given to us, we must give to others. That's Christian love. It's not easy. It's not easy because oftentimes we have to love people who are unrepentant, who are just solidly set in their obstinate way. I think about unrepentance. I think about Klaus Barbie, the butcher of Lyon. You read about him just this past week. He, he died after hiding out for years in South America and finally was arrested and now has died. This man who was responsible for so many atrocities against God's people. Someone asked him just before his death, do you have any regrets? He said, why should I have any regrets? What is there to regret, he said, if I should be born a thousand times again? I should a thousand times do as I did. I would be as I was. Now, when someone has an attitude like that, it takes a mature Christian love to love that person, to seek that person's highest good. Indeed, when we think about it, we realize it's easiest to love those people who repent in the way we think they should repent, who come over to our point of view and and adopt our posture, then it's easy for us to love them. It reminds me of the young woman who was especially nervous at her wedding rehearsal. As she thought about the next day, she was just about to fall apart, and her pastor 
was trying to help her pull herself together. He came up with some ideas as to how she might not be quite so nervous. He said, now, tomorrow, when the wedding march begins, I want you to look at that aisle and remember how many times you walked down it. All of your life you've been walking down that aisle. It's a very familiar aisle to you. Just think about it. Just keep your mind on the aisle. And then as you start down the aisle, I want you to look at the altar. And remember how many times you've received communion at the altar. How you were baptized at the altar. And just think about the altar. After you think about the aisle, think about the altar. And then when you get almost to the front, look over at the man you're going to marry and and think about him and how much you love him. And think about these three uh, uh, things and, and you'll make it fine. And so the next day as she came down the aisle, those who were on the ends of the pews could hear her muttering to herself, I'll alter him. I'll alter him. We have to face it, don't we? If if we can alter someone, if we can make them like we are, then we can love them easily. But that's not the kind of love I'm talking about. This Christian love has been so misunderstood by so many people. There are those who say it's ridiculous to talk about loving everyone, and from the non-Christian perspective, it is. Because we cannot love a stranger as we would love a spouse or a child or a grandchild. But that isn't what the Bible's asking us to do. These are heart loves. And and anyone can do that. But the Bible asks the followers of Jesus, indeed commands us in this radical commandment, to offer Christian love to all people, beginning with those significant others who make up the inner circle of our lives. That means when there's a cold war in the family, And there are cold wars that go on for years. When those cold wars are going on, the burden is always on the Christian to initiate reconciliation. The Christian has the responsibility to make the overture to become vulnerable, to run the risk of being hurt, to run the risk of being rejected. After all, if God had not become vulnerable on the cross in Jesus Christ, We would have kept our defenses up forever. But he he gets behind our defenses because he became vulnerable. And we must become vulnerable as Christians. Because our God has said, if you're even going to make a gift to me before you bring it to the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, you just hold that gift until you go and make it right with your brother or sister. Our relationships with God... Our relationship with him is tied up with all of these other relationships. So we cannot just let these situations languish. We have to take the initiative. We have to reach out. You see, a good relationship with God requires a good relationship with significant others. You say to me, oh, I'll concentrate on my relationship with God. I'll just grow and grow in my love for God, and after I get perfected in God, I'll take care of these others. Doesn't work that way. John said, if you love those significant others, you're walking in the light. 
You don't have any cause for stumbling. But if you don't love those significant others, you will stumble. Which is to say, if you cannot love your significant other, whom you can see, how can you love God, whom you cannot see? Your spiritual progress is bound up in your ability to give Christian love to others. God does not go on hold. The Bible says we know we have passed from death unto life when we know one thing, what is it? When we love the brethren, when we love significant others, we know we've passed from death unto life. One of the most gratifying experiences in my life came through a person who did not like me. I know you have a hard time with that, but she just really didn't like me. From the day I became her pastor, she said bad things about my preaching, about my leadership of the church. She was just really down on me. And to make it worse, she was always comparing me in a, in a poor light with a television evangelist. She was always holding up this other brother and telling me how shoddy I looked by comparison. And then to make matters worse, every time we came to that end of the year when we make our commitments for the next year, she would always take one half of her time and make a note of it, and, and write me a letter, and send that half of the tithe to that brother who didn't have any accountability for how he spent it. And she would send half her tithe to the local church to which she believed. I tell you, it was tough. I really went through a struggle. I wanted to tell her exactly how I felt about her and about the way she was carrying on toward me. But from somewhere outside myself, I found the ability to give her Christian love. And I remember still when that brother's ministry folded up, bombed, crashed, went out of existence. And I had to fight again the urge to say, aha. <laughs> but somehow I managed to get past that. And because God helped me over that hurdle... That person is now one of the finest friends I have. And I didn't have to call her today to ask whether or not she's praying for me. I know she prays for me. She gives me Christian love. I believe that any progress we make spiritually is going to be traced and can be traced to the progress we make in our relationships with others. But the interesting thing about this love is it's a gift. Though it's of the mind and the emotions and the attitudes are involved, it's a gift. That's why we're so misunderstood by people who don't believe. They say, look, I love just like a Christian. What do you mean you have something I don't have? Sure, we all feel the same heart kind of loves, but a Christian love is a seeking of the highest good, a, a principle of life. And how does that come? The Bible says that comes through the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Paul said it another way in Romans. He said, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when through an act of will, we say, Lord, we are ready for that love. We want you to let us love. We want you to fill us with your love. That's when we receive that gift. It's not enough to mentally say, 
That's what the world needs. What the world needs now is love, love, love. It isn't enough to say that's what we need. It can become a reality only when that love lives in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. We must give him a chance then to come into our hearts and to fill us with his own love. Helen Hayes was bitter. If you read her book, This I Believe, you know she felt separated from God and from her friends. And then she started to go pray at an altar. She realized this God has taken the initiative. Before we deserved it, he gave himself for us. She saw people get up from that altar with a new light in their eyes. She saw changed lives. And she went and prayed. And one day she said, I stood up and I was one of them. My life was changed too. I felt at one with all the people around me. A changed life and a feeling of oneness. My friends, they go together. Let God help you give Christian love to the significant others in your life. Amen. Will you join me in the great thanksgiving? The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. And so, with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy. Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Holy are you and blessed is your Son, Jesus Christ. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples, and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, in remembrance of these mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ suffering for us as we proclaim the mystery of our faith. Preserve your soul and body in the everlasting life. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ broken for you.
blood of our Lord Jesus Christ poured out for you. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ poured out for you. Amen. body of Jesus, broken for you, may it preserve your soul and body unto everlasting life. Eat this in remembrance of him, and be thankful.
blood of our Lord Jesus Christ poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of him and be thankful. My friends, let us remember as we have received these symbols of the undeserved love of God expressed in the person of Jesus Christ, let us remember that our Lord can cleanse our hearts of resentments and hatreds and can give us the power to love other people. He must have our help and our willingness, however. We must be willing to take that first step Maybe God is leading you to step out this morning and to give your life to Christ. Perhaps you've already talked to one of our ministers about joining our church, moving your membership, and you simply need to come forward. This is your time to come and let us welcome and present you to our church. Will you come as we sing this great old camp meeting song, Grace Greater Than Our Sin? Let us stand. Good morning. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. We hope this communion service has been meaningful to you at home. And if you're hungry for a great fellowship, I invite you to come to First Church. You'll find us a warm and friendly people. We'd love to see you personally. God bless you.